If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to IFHPodcastNetwork.com. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I see dead people. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. Filmmaking Conversations with Damien Swayde is part of the critical conversations currently taking place across the film community. The podcast reaches out to the next generation of filmmakers who continue to look for inspiration and guidance. Remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a comment in the comments section. Share the podcast with friends and family, and have a great day. And now, over to the host of the show, Damien Swaby. Today on Filmmaking Conversations, I'll be speaking to Joe Keenan. Joe joined the staff of the sitcom Frasier as an executive story editor in 1994. During his six seasons on the show, he rose through the ranks from executive story editor to executive producer. Keenan won five Emmy Awards during his time on the show. He was nominated for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series five times. He won the Outstanding Comedy Series Award four times for his work on the show. He also won two Writers Guild of America Awards for his work on the series. Joe is an outstanding writer and growing up I was glued to the screen when Frasier was on right here in the UK, Fridays on Channel 4. It was fantastic talking to Joe and I was taken aback finding out that Joe also writes for musicals, some of which you can hear in this show. So here is my filmmaking conversation with Joe Keenan right here, right now. You've done a lot of work, so many great things you've been a, a part of and and before that as far as I'm aware you also had been a part of musicals um, something I've been involved in myself so I, 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 I have a certain amount of knowledge about that stage or film stage oh. stage uh, Windsor and Guildford and a, a few other places um, you know I where I performed but and so you've been you've been involved as a performer not not as a, a writer or a lyricist or composer Oh no, not performer, strictly performer in, in for musicals. Uh, I, I wouldn't know where to, to start <laughs> on, the, on the other side of things regarding musicals. Um, I, would, I really wouldn't know. But how did you- What's performing in them as a, as a kid and when I was in high school and college and still, still a boy actor before you had to choose whether you wanted to be an actor or a writer and devote yourself to which, which one professionally. And I didn't think I had it to be an actor, but God, did I enjoy it during, during the years where you could still you know, do it as an amateur way. Uh, in, I, I remember doing musicals, doing the, doing the Fantastics and doing The Apple Tree and How to Succeed in Business and shows like that in high school and college, such fun. Excellent. So why did you choose writing over performing? Because as a writer, nobody could stop you from doing what you wanted to do. True. As an actor, you were, you were beholden to somebody else giving you a job before you could begin to exercise your craft. You can't sit in your living room and play Hamlet. You can, but it won't do you much good. Mm. Whereas if you want to write a play, you can write that play. You can write as many plays as you want. 
and perhaps nobody will want to put them on. But meanwhile, you are practicing your craft, you're learning and you're getting better. Very true. Very true. Um, I must say, um, it's slightly different for me now as a, and many people listening, there's like screenwriters and cinematographers and video editors and, and things of that nature. And if you're not acting and you're behind the camera, you've got so much more of a chance to improve and work on your craft without having to kind of wait for an agent to say, here's a casting or an audition for you. And if you to potentially get a call back and potentially get the job. So I completely understand what you mean. I also marveled, I know many, many stage actors or some of my, my dearest friends, like Harriet Harris, who played B.B. Glazer in Frasier, is, is one of my best friends. And I'm always marvel at their ability to, you know, work and work, finally get a job and get into a long run and then have to do that part for a year and a half. And the, and the, the discipline it takes to, you know, to go out there and play the same role or sing the same song every night for a year and a half and on Broadway. And that's, that's the pinnacle of it. But I never imagined I would have, have the patience <clears throat> the board after, after a couple of you know, weeks or months into a run. That's true. Such, such discipline to go out and give 110% every night is, is, is something else, isn't it? Yeah, and such respect when you see it. Uh, one of my greatest evenings in the theater was I saw Patti LuPone in Anything Goes in the late 80s, and it was a week before she closed, and she'd been playing it for a year, and she gave an opening night performance. And I respected that so much because I've seen people, you know, six months into a run kind of walking through it. But when you, you say you had to choose between writing and um, acting, what was your schooling like, and how did you get into the industry? Uh, well, my, 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 my high school was, uh, was a Jesuit high school, which found fame in the film Spotlight. Did you see that film? No, I haven't seen that one. It won, it won the Oscar. It was a film about the uh, investigation into priests abusing uh, young men in Boston in the 70s and 80s. And uh, it was set at the Boston Globe, the newspaper that was directly across from my high school, which was something of a hotbed of such behavior okay. uh, back, back, back in the day. Uh, uh, but that it was also a wonderful Jesuit high school where, you know, where, where theater was having a particular renaissance at that time, a lot of people converging in their teens who would go on to have careers. Uh, then I went to Columbia undergrad uh, and dropped out after two and a half years because they didn't have a writing major. And I was very interested in, in becoming a writer. And it was at that time in the, in the late 70s, there was no undergraduate program with an emphasis on writing. You were in fact limited to how many writing courses you could take as credit towards your English major. You were allowed two courses in writing in your entire four year career. And any courses you took after that, the points would not accrue toward your major. Oh. So after five semesters and five writing courses, the last three of which didn't count, I, I kind of said, I'm not sure why I'm here and I left. But I then okay. went on to get a master's without having gotten the bachelor's. NYU was doing a musical theater program uh, and writing, uh, and, and writing book, book musicals. And uh, I auditioned for it. I had material that I gave to a friend who, who, who alerted me to it. And they let me into this program, which was only 16 people. Uh, and they gave me a master's without, without need of a bachelor's because they were more interested in people who were really committed to, to the craft than to whether or not you had an undergraduate degree. And that was an amazing experience because the faculty at that time, we were only the second cycle of students to, uh, to go through the program. And you, the, the teachers were people like, uh, maybe your, your listeners won't know the names, but Arthur Lawrence and Richard Malpe and Sheldon Harnick and Peter Stone. These were people who had written you know, musicals like West Side Story and Gypsy and Fiddler on the Roof. The, the authors of these musicals were teaching the 16 of us. So oh, that, that, was, that was a pretty exhilarating uh, and slightly terrifying experience as well. <laughs> you would have a week to write, you would be given an assignment and you would have a week to write a song and then get up there and perform it in Arthur Lawrence or Mary Rogers' living room, and that, which, could, which could be daunting. <laughs> If you, if you weren't terribly happy with the result you'd achieved. Um, but anyway, after that, I did, um, I did a, a musical called The Times that, that won a prize. We did a reading at the Manhattan Theater Club that led to a, a workshop production at the Long Wharf in New Haven, then a full stage at the Long Wharf in New Haven. And meanwhile, I had written my first uh, comic novel, a book called Blue Heaven. Um, and uh, and Blue Heaven, very very funny book, uh, and it it gotten some it got attention uh, from from the press, 
And it got attention from people in television, including a writer named David Lloyd, who had written for, uh, for Mary Tyler Moore in Taxi uh, and was now writing for Frasier. And he gave the book as a gift to a lot of people, including Glenn and Les Charles and Jim Burroughs, who had created Cheers. And so one day my phone rang and it was my literary agent saying that she had gotten a call from the people who do Cheers and they liked my book and would I be interested in coming out and talking about writing a pilot for them. And that was how I got started in television. I had, I had never sought work in that industry, not because I didn't think it was, you know, a terrific opportunity or a very exciting and glamorous thing to do, but simply because I was on the wrong side of the country for it. I was in New York. And at that time, if you wanted to pursue a career uh, in television writing, starting from zero, the only way to do it was to pull, you know, pull up stakes move to Los Angeles, you know, write spec scripts, make the rounds. And if you were lucky in two years, you'd get, you'd get a low level job, you know, working for a show that you might not even want to watch, but it was a foot in the door. And I was, I was too interested in theater and too happy on the East Coast to pursue that strategy, but they came knocking and I thought, well, this is, this is a ridiculously wonderful opportunity. So of course I went out and uh, met them. And the pilot that I wrote, it was the last thing that, that uh, Glenn and Les Charles ever produced as, uh, as TV producers. It was a pilot uh, set in Hollywood. It was, a, it was a satire of the film industry in the 30s. And it was called Gloria Vane about, about a very famous actress in Hollywood in 1938. Uh, and your, your listeners can find it. It's on YouTube, Gloria Vane, B-A-N-E. And it was lavishly, yes. produ it was lavishly produced with uh, Jo Beth Williams starring Nina Foch, from American in Paris played her mother and several Frasier members were in mm -hmm. it as well. Harriet Harris played her, her gal Friday Thelma and Edward Hibbert who played uh, the, the film critic Gil Chesterton on Frasier uh, played, played her director of most of her features. Uh, and it was a wonderful, it was a very funny, very fun pilot and we made it and I was very proud of it but I had never written a TV script before, it was my first script. And when it came to you know, the question of putting it on the air, not only was it such a sui generis kind of piece that didn't quite line up programming wise with anything else that they had on the schedule, but I was a complete novice who knew nothing about running a show. But it did serve as my calling card for Frasier and the people there it was done on the same lot, you know, a few stages away from the Frasier stage and everybody there knew it. And so I, I got a call saying, would you like to join, uh, would you like to audition to join the cast of Frasier in the second year? And so uh, I, I, I met with the, I met, I had conversations on the phone. I wrote, uh, I wrote a script and they, they liked the script and they took me on. Uh, and that script, it was, uh, it became uh, an episode called the, the Botched Language of Cranes, which was the first one I wrote, but the second one that aired. And the first one that I wrote when I joined the staff was, <clears throat> was uh, an episode called The Matchmaker in season two that, uh, that got nominated for, won the Emmy for directing for David Lee, got nominated for writing, won a GLAAD award and won the Writers Guild Award. So I was off to a, a very, very auspicious start. Oh, an excellent one. You know, but but I, the, the, the thing to stress there is though I was brand new to television, I had at that point, I was over 30 and I had done a lengthy apprenticeship in other forms. I wasn't just walking in cold. I'd yeah. written farcical novels, I'd written plays, I'd written a lot, I just hadn't written TV. So I was, not, I was, I was inexperienced in TV script writing, but I'd done, I've been writing since I was seven. That sounds amazing. I mean, I've actually watched Blue Heaven. <clears throat> Sorry, I've watched Blue Heaven, the, the pilot. And the thing that really got sorry yes sorry sorry my bad and the thing that really impressed me the opening straight away it just it just looked like it was taking you somewhere else it was and some of the camera movement and you just felt so grand and i love the way the it went from black and white back into color when the lady was acting and when she was yeah. you know it, it it was really really impressive and after i saw it i thought i'll definitely have to ask you the question i know you've mentioned that it's not it wouldn't fit into certain programming at certain times, but were there any, any other reasons? And do you think there might not have been, there might have been a reason for that show to be put on, on another time, for example, because it felt really, really good to me. It felt really, really good to me and people of, you know, uh, I'll, 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 I'll tell you a funny story about it. Uh, but uh, people have suggested, you know, that it might still be revived and go on someplace else. I think it would have a harder time finding an audience now because the world of old movies 
that it's that it's you know spoofing and you know set in is not as familiar to as broad an audience in 2021 as it was in 1994. Sure. Um, that that period was comparatively recent. In fact, that period the period in which the film was set was not much you know was as you know, it was not much longer ago in 94 than 94 is now. Yeah. So I think, you know, people, you know, it, it's, it's very what they would call niche. Uh, it did really get resurrected once. I had, um, I had a lunch once with Kathleen Turner and she, you know, she was thinking of doing a, a multi-cam sitcom and, you know, she somehow or other She'd been she'd been uh, slipped a copy of Gloria Bain, and she decided that that was what she wanted to do. But uh, at the time, I was under contract to Fraser, and uh, and and I said, well, the people the people who did Fraser would have to approve it, and they might be leery because that pilot already failed once, and they had just had another show on the air, one of the, I think the first that they had produced since Fraser, a show called The Pursuit of Happiness, which uh, hadn't gone over as well as they'd hoped, hadn't quite gelled as much as they'd hoped, and had only lasted half a season before being yanked. So I said to Kathleen Turner, they might be very leery given the show's history of risking another failure. And she screwed up her face and she said, I suppose I can understand that. She said, me, I have never had a failure. Oh, no. And I sat there across from her <laughs> at the ballet at lunch thinking, I can immediately think of seven failures you had. <laughs> But you, I, me, I have never had a failure. <laughs> I thought, thank you for that anecdote, Kathleen. I've never had a failure. Wow. <laughs> so when, what is your writing process actually like? Because many people listening would have read many screenwriting books like The Hero's Journey or Save the Cat or something by Sid Field. But you yourself, what type of process do you go on for certain projects on television? Well, I haven't, I haven't had, you know, many, many cold screen, I mean, in terms of, you know, cr creating things, you know, creating pilots, I've, I, I've been paid for any number of pilots that have involved massive, indeed, heartbreaking amounts of work. And after a year, you know, they don't get greenlit. They decide, we're, oh, we're not going to make that. Thank you very much. We're going to make this other thing instead. So, and, and so <laughs> the, the, the process that has spawned these stillborn pilots may not be that, that instructive to your listeners. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, my, it's, more, it's more interesting perhaps, you know, what spawns a play, what spawns, uh, what spawns a book. And you, you, look, you look for, you know, with a comedy, you look for a kernel of something. You ask yourself, what is the comic engine of it? What is the dynamic? What is going to generate steady interest and, uh, and, and a steady, you know, particularly with a pilot for a show, what is the dynamic that's going to be fun to, uh, to revisit again and again? What is, you know, some, you know, what is something that can be milked season after season for relatable stories and laughs? So many people I notice write, you know, you see pilots and you say, you've told the story, there's no place else to go with it. You can only tell it again, you know, 10 or, 10 or 12 times until everybody's sick of it and you're off the air. You look for relationship dynamics. You look for, you know, you look for, you know, for the kind of fodder or, you know, that, that's relatable and, and can be examined from multiple angles and, and something that's an inexhaustible source of, of, of comedy. I mean, when you look at, I mean, I, since working on Frasier, I constantly, you know, revisit the premise of that show and the relationships and say that there were so many things. One of the reasons that show ran so long and successfully is it had so many dynamics to explore. Yeah. It had the workplace dynamic, it had his constant, it had his snobbery and his social striving, it mm. had his desire to do good in the world with his patients and the, the, the occasional successes and the frequent ineptitude. It had his loneliness and his desire to find, to find a woman and the countless ways in which his vanity <laughs> sabotaged every time. It had the brother's relationship, the loss yes. and, the, and, the, and the competitiveness. It had the, the relationship of each brother with the father. It had, it had Niles's you know, romantic longing for Daphne, which played out over a very long time. There are a lot of different places to go for stories so that every week the audience didn't know what they would get. Completely. As opposed to something where it's the same thing every week. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's the same. Or you're pulling things from the outside that are 
increasingly arbitrary and not involving because they lack, I don't know, they lack relatability, they lack emotion. You know, so, you, you think of like how the, the old, Lucille Ball did one of her later series and there seemed to be no story except Lucy meeting a different celebrity every week. <laughs> yeah. They don't rerun, they don't rerun well. No, no, that, that's not quite the same. I, I agree with you. And your experience on the show is fascinating as far as I'm concerned and, and many others for sure, because you started as a story editor, I think I'm, I'm right by saying. The ranks are, now I, I, I say this with the proviso that every show is different. Every show is its own mm -hmm. culture. You know, every showrunner sets their own tone, has their own idiosyncrasies. Uh, and circumstances can vary wildly. But in my experience on, on uh, multi-cam television, in, in the 90s and, and aughts, uh, the ranks can be a little bit illusory and that they, that they represent tenure more than, more than contribution. That in, the, that in the writers, the writer's room is like every writer's room you've ever seen. Depicted, you know? uh, it's a bunch of people sitting in a room and it's, it, it's the idea that matters, the story notion, the joke pitch that counts not the rank of the person saying it, suggesting it. So from the very beginning with, with Frasier, I felt that we were, regardless of our titles, by and large, a group of equals pursuing the same, the same goal to come up with good stories, to write good scripts, and, and, and to once, you know, once the script was in production, to watch it and improve it daily until it was ready to shoot. Everybody had that same task. The only different job is, um, is the executive producer showrunner and uh, the uh, the showrunner the showrunner is a key word there and that you can be an executive producer and not be a showrunner or you can have two showrunners you can have co-showrunners uh as angel casey and lee were in the first season and and that was increasingly christopher lloyd and that role is pivotal because that is the person who keeps who makes the final decision on, on stories, on, on jokes, when you're doing a rewrite and people are pitching jokes, you could pitch on one line for an hour and a half. Somebody has to say, we're doing that, write that into the writer's assistant, moving on. And with that, without a good showrunner, it would be, it would be uh, uh, an infernal democracy with everybody arguing and nobody to, nobody to settle what, the net, what, you know, what we were gonna do. Oh, that makes sense, definitely. So that, so, you know, now, Naturally, if you are junior, if you the, the, the more inexperienced you are, the more junior on a staff, it ill becomes you to be particularly noisy or squawking or, you know, constantly talking, uh, uh, and, you know, and, and unless you have, you're pretty sure you have something good to pitch. Frasier was, we were told, we, whenever we would meet writers from other shows, we would always say, is the Frasier room really as quiet as we hear? We hear people sit there for, you know, for half an hour and nobody says anything. And uh, though reports were somewhat exaggerated, it was kind of a rule that if you didn't have anything good to say, you don't have to say anything. Oh, great. Am, am I right by saying that might speed up the process or? It, 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 it definitely, it, it, it put, you know, it, it put pressure on, but I've been in rooms where, where people feel that they score, they earn their money by talking. And it's like, you won't shut up. You have nothing to contribute. You are, this is, you are not pitching, you're riffing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We don't have to hear this. You're not James Joyce. We don't need your stream of consciousness. <laughs> That, that's great to hear because I thought in a writer's room everybody's trying to get their bit in. Can be. I mean, when I went, I I knew a few people before I'd gotten into television who had worked in TV, and the the picture they painted was of a a very cutthroat environment where everybody was you know out to you know out to you know do everybody else in everybody trying to get their material in and to undermine everybody else. And I'm sure there are rooms that had a kind of toxic culture that way. Yeah. But Frasier Room was, thank God, famously collegial. Everybody, everybody, everybody was very supportive. It was very collegial between, between the writers and the cast as well. There was a great deal of, uh, of mutual respect. Uh, I mean, we, we got along, we socialized together. Everybody, you know, everybody, everybody liked everybody. And it was pretty much an asshole-free environment. And if, you know, if people were 
you know, a pain in the ass, they would not be invited back the next year. One of the things I also noticed was, uh, I could be wrong, but it felt like the majority of the, the main cast, well, the main cast was unchanged for 11 years. Yes. So the people, people, people came in and did, and, and did you know, arcs for, you know, for, for a long time, but, you know, the, the core cast didn't change, which was unusual. I mean, mm. uh, Cheers, you know, Cheers, you know, changed a lot more in its 11 years. I mean, Nicholas mm. Colasato died and was replaced by Woody Harrelson. Shelley Long quit and was replaced by uh, Kirstie Alley. But, but the core cast of Frasier didn't change, which made it, which made it challenging. I was on the show seasons two through seven, uh, and then Chris Lloyd and I returned to run the final season 11. But I know that during seasons eight, nine, and 10, it, it, you know, it, was, it was harder and harder, particularly once the romantic tension of Daphne and Niles was resolved you know, to, fi to find stories to tell with those characters. We, so, had a much e we had a much easier time season 11 because since we were building up to a finale, we could do things that we were not, would not then be stuck with. We yeah. could give Miles and Daphne a baby in the, in the series finale without having to do baby stories next year. Ah, uh, I see. Yes, of course. And I also, you, uh, we're, mentioned, we're talking about Niles, but he's, he almost became like a, a breakout character in some ways, in, in my opinion, because he was, the brother's relationship was vital to the show. And it almost felt like at sometimes, especially in some episodes, it was like Niles and Fraser's show rather than just Fraser. How did Niles become so prominent in the show in that way? He, I don't know that he became prominent so much as, uh, well, as David Hyde Pierce is a phenomenally funny, gifty, gifted actor. Uh, Niles was a wonderful character. Uh, and, you know, it became clear, you know, from the pilot on that Frasier and Niles was comic gold. Now, John, the, the father-son relationship and the Frasier-Martin relationship and the Frasier-Niles-Martin relationship were, you know, were, you know, equally rich and, and, and spawned an equal number of episodes. But because Frasier and Niles were more often in cahoots, more often doing things together, you had perhaps more Frasier-Niles stories than, than stories centering around the father-son relationship. And were there, was there any kind of um, improv between Niles and Frasier? And I ask that because sometimes it felt so natural and, and perhaps off the cuff, or was that just all written and they're just like great performers that can make it feel and, and look that way? It, everything, everything was scripted. The only thing that was not scripted was a bit they used to do where you would, you would end a, a scene or do a beat where they would start talking over each other. And at that point, we just say, start to, I, well, you know what, you know what your viewpoints are here. You've each had a line, now start talking at the same time. And that, that, that they would riff, that they, they had no trouble at all expressing themselves as the characters, as they, in over, they said, I, I think in the script, it would just say they go into an overlap. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. But those were the only things that, as a rule, were improvised. No, it's not to say that, you know, that they might not suggest, uh, not so, not so terribly often a line, but a suggestion of the direction of a line, or it would be nice if there was something saying this here, and we'd go back and put that in. So why did you leave after season seven? Have you thought of upgrading your cinematography game? Would you like to have an ASC cinematographer mentor you for free? Join veteran cinematographer Suki Medenzovic, ASC, Disney, Pixar, FX Networks, Netflix, American Horror Story, as he teaches you how to create beautiful images using three lighting techniques he has mastered on film sets over his 30 plus years in the film industry. Each technique uses basic, low-cost lighting equipment so that anyone can achieve beautiful visuals no matter your project's budget. If you want to take your cinematography to the next level, visit filmmakingconversations.com to sign up for instant access. If you like this podcast, share it with friends, leave a comment in the comment section and hit the subscribe button. Well, I, you know, at that point I'd been on it for six seasons, uh, which is a long time. And uh, Chris Lloyd had been on it for seven seasons. And there was a sense that it was, you know, time to try something else. And I, I was, I was afraid of only doing that show ever. And I, also was afraid of 
the show losing its bloom a little bit, that it was, I didn't want the show to stay too long at the fair and go into a kind of, not, not decline, but diminishment that I had observed in a number of shows that ran into season eight, nine, and 10 and beyond. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I worried, I worried personally about being able to find, you know, a, a, enough stories, uh, enough fresh stories of enough things we hadn't done uh, and, and not, not feel like we were just repeating ourselves to diminishing returns and because they wanted the show to run. Kelsey had signed, I think, for another three years. And we thought, well, at, at some point you have to get off the train and give other people a chance who might come in and have different perspectives on things to do with the show that you might have done or wouldn't have occurred to you. And we had uh, signed a deal to develop uh, a, a new material. Um, and, and so for that reason, we left. I mean, six years on one show is a, is, is a, long, is a long time. I mean, Angel, Casey, and Lee, who created the show, continued to, uh, to oversee it. But they, I mean, they were not there on a daily basis. Uh, and they, they, they had gone off and pursued other things. They had done a show with Nathan Lane called Encore, Encore. And it was, you know, it was, it was just time to give somebody else a, a turn at writing it. And it was very, uh, it, it was, it was sad to think that we wouldn't be there for the show's final season. Mm. But uh, then we did Frasier an enormous flavor, uh, favor by, by producing <laughs> a large-scale flop starring Alfred Molina called Bram and Alice, which left us available <laughs> and return and, and, and co-run the show's final season 11, which was you know, a, a, a wonderful season and, uh, and one of my absolute favorite seasons on the show, the things we were able to do and the way we were able to, you know, to, you know, to bring the show to a conclusion that more people are not found very satisfying. So what was the show you worked on that allowed you to come back and work on? The we, we, we did a, we did a, a, a show with Alfred Molina called Bram and Alice about a, a ne'er-do-well one-hit wonder novelist who, there were echoes of I mean, there echoes career-wise of, uh, of, of J.D. Salinger, who have to catch her in the rye, never heard again. Somebody who'd written, you know, a, a phenomenally successful book and had been at work on the other, you know, for, for 20 or 25 years. But he was basically what they call a coaster. Somebody who had one success, Janet parlays that into a life of cocktail parties and skirt chasing. And it was about that man, played by Melina, discovering that he had fathered a daughter and this this daughter an aspiring writer and he reconnecting in a relationship and there there were a lot of there were a lot of things that were wrong um with the show conceptually not least of which was that we realized that it was a story the story of this character was not one that you could really tell uh, in a one set you know home-based apartment-based show because his life really happened, you know, the life of those people happened at, at parties and sort of careening around, around the world. And, and at home, you could only do the before and the after. I see. So it, 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 it was, you know, it was not as well thought out as we'd hoped. And, you know, and, and I mean, to say it was, it, it was, it was a flawed show and, and an idea that was worth revisiting in completely different form. And, and, and another project you know, at, at some point, but didn't, didn't gel as a sitcom. But it was a chance to work with Fred Molina, who was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, Roger Bart was in the show. Katie Finneran, who'd done a Frasier or two, uh, was, was also in the cast. Um, but anyway, it, it, it did not, it, it, only, it only lasted a couple of episodes before a CBS, which was another beast than NBC, had yanked it. And we were, we were free to rejoin Frasier for season 11. We joined Frasier. It was the final episode, Good Night Seattle, which I'm guessing everyone loved. I loved it myself. Tell us about your process writing that episode and how well received it was amongst the cast and crew. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, we, we knew from the get-go where, where the season would end and sort of looking at what, what is the last year of the show going to be and where do you leave all the characters. Uh, we had decided a couple of things you know, before, before even you know, returning to the room. Uh, one was that, and I think a pivotal one was that we had in 10 seasons of Bad Dates never seen Frazier fall in love. He was always chasing, you know, Miss Wright, who is Miss Wright now, but he never felt for anybody the same thwarted, desperate, lovesick passion that Niles had for Daphne. And we said it would, you know, Frazier needed to fall in love. And that, 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 would, that arc would comprise the last however many episodes that wound up being only about the last six. And that uh, at the end, it would be like a Shakespearean ending with the marriage and the birth. And that Frazier at the end, everybody being settled, Niles now had a family. His father, dad would, you know, would remarry finally to, uh, to a character we had yet to create. It was wonderful. Her name was Ronnie. She was a lounge singer, wonderfully played by Wendy Malick. And that pairing of, of Wendy Malick and Don Mahoney was just, was just gold. They were so terrific together. Hmm. Um, and that Frazier, seeing that everybody else was having a new beginning of sorts, a marriage, a, a, a child, would feel, just as he had at the end of Cheers, restless and needing to find, to start a new chapter in his life. And it would end with him going off to take the same sort of leap he took by coming to Seattle. And uh, what that leap would be, that it would be, you know, would it be a new career leap or would it be in pursuit of a, of a relationship? A, a woman who'd gotten away, but he wasn't ready to give up on yet, uh, was something that was saved you know, as a reveal for the very last moment of, of the episode. So we knew all that, you know, from before we even began the season. So a lot, a lot of the year was just building up to the point where, where we could, you know, put all those pieces together. Uh, we had, you know, Daphne's, Daphne's brothers, always such a hit with our British fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of those. We hadn't, you know, the reason there were, the reason we had Richard Grant and Robbie Coltrane yeah. were, were, were that we didn't think, uh, we would have uh, the, the, the beloved um, uh, Simon, Simon, Simon returning, and uh, God help me, I'm, I'm blanking on the actor, Anthony LaPaglia. Um, Anthony LaPaglia had, had played Simon before with, with you know, the, the most iffy uh, English accent, you know, in the history of the show, known among his British fans for the iffiness of its accents. Um, but we didn't think we were going to get him because he was doing a, a show on CBS at the time, a crime procedural. Um, and Les Moonves seemed disinclined to let him go to do Frasier because it was a rival network. So we said, well, we wanted, uh, we wanted Daphne's brothers to show up for the birth of the child. And the reason they had to show up was to put the fear of God into Niles that just as he and Frasier had owed very little to Martin and everything to their mother's more cerebral side of the family, what if, what if his you know, child would be nothing like him or Frasier and everything like the men in Daphne's family? So yeah. to bring Hannah home, you had to bring in the men in Daphne's family. You know, to you know, to to get Niles off on, on that, you know, on that, you know, comic stream of panic. <laughs> yes. So we, when we didn't have Angela Polly, we said, well, let's get Robbie Coltrane, and we got Richard Grant to come in, and then they gave us Angela Polly. So suddenly, we had three. My my favorite part of part of the, the trio of brothers was telling Robbie Coltrane, "We are going to script you lines, but we don't want to understand a word you say. <laughs> so read the line and render it as indecipherably as possible. But Daphne will always understand you perfectly," which was a rather broad joke to be doing, but it but it tickled us, and I think people found it funny. Yes, they they certainly did. I mean, it's great. There's I've seen one or two um, people online say things like that like a kind of broad british 
northern british english accent it's it can be hard to understand sometimes so i can see why he did it and um well, it certainly was, was always slightly wrecked so you had the accent and you had and, and and you had the booze on top of it it kind of yeah puts it all around the place in that way so there's, there's so many past characters in fraser's life was there ever a temptation to make some of those characters from cheers a bit more prominent in the show or because as far as i remember only lilith was there more than the others I, I think i'm right by saying that was there ever a temptation to see more of sam or norm sam sam did uh, there was not a temptation to do more there was a, a temptation and to some extent an obligation to revisit them because they yeah. were such a part of fraser's life but you know, Lilith he was married to, so that was a, and they had a son, so that was a relationship that you could definitely, you know, had enough of a, of a centrality in his life to continue to explore it. You know, his old, his old barfly friends, you wanted for the sake of nostalgia to see them again, but, uh, but it didn't bear repeated explorations, you know, the, him and Woody, you know, him and Sam was, 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 was a good episode. The, um, the most terrified I ever was at a table reading of Frasier was the show where Ted Danson came to play Sam. And we sat down to read the episode and uh, realized after we'd gathered at the table that David Hyde Pierce wasn't there because it was a Wednesday and David was doing Saturday Night Live that weekend. So he, not, he would not be there. He was light in the episode and would not be there until Monday. So as we sat down, David Lee, the director of the episode, looked at me and said, oh, we don't have David, Joe, be Niles. So I, I had to read scenes as Niles opposite Ted Danson reprising the role of Sam Malone for the first time since that show had ended five years earlier. And how did he feel about that? Uh, Ted, Ted was fine. Ted, Ted was, uh, Ted, I remember him being very muted at the table. Sometimes if people are, he was wonderful in the episode, but at the table, he, he seemed a little gun shy and so under delivered everything. Sometimes okay. people read in a very, I'm just going to give you the words on the page way. Sometimes our cast acted out everything exuberantly. Uh, and that's how we've done the jokes. But sometimes a guest star would, would give you a more muted reading. And Ted, who seemed a little nervous to me that day, gave, gave a muted table reading and was, of course, wonderful in the episode. Terrific. He's a wonderful guy. Are there any guest stars in particular that gave a great reading that we would know of? Uh, well, all of, all, you know, all of the, all of the guest stars, you know, came in and, and did wonderful readings. My, and my favorite guest stars, I mean, the ones I, I remember, I remember, I remember, um, James Patrick Stewart who played Guy in the Ski Lodge. He was wonderful. I mean, B.B. Glazer was always wonderful. She was, she was recurring, not a guest star. I remember the only time we had a caller at the table, somebody who was only on the phone yeah. was Faith Prince when she played, she had a long scene uh that was strictly on the phone but it was such a pivotal scene that she actually came to the table to read it because it was like you know a three-page scene with fraser oh okay. uh, i remember P patrick stewart was you know was wonderful laurie laurie metcalf you know was wonderful i mean people people generally were i could tell i, I remember christopher reeve being on the phone in, in one episode that that was great so then we never, we never knew by the way the writers never knew who would be on the phone because the, the, they were recorded after the episode was done. So we would have just a working actor in a booth off, off to the side of the stage doing the phone call with Frazier. And then the part would be offered to various celebrities and what better known names who would literally phone the role in. They, they would record it from their homes, just get on the phone and read the lines and that would be spliced into the episode. So you would write these calls and you would not know until the episode aired who the who the actual caller was and frequently not even then if you didn't stay and watch the very quick credits at the end of the episode oh so yeah you would find out you would find out years after you'd written an episode you know 10 years after it aired and you'd written the line and say oh my god that was yo-yo ma i had no idea <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely see your point there because I, first why i mentioned christopher reeves because i was a lover and i still am i love superman so as soon as I heard the voice, I was like, oh, Clark Kent. But generally, I, I don't think I would have known um, it was him. So, I, you know, I, I, I can relate to you in, in that regard. 
But in terms of the last episode, one of the lines that really struck me that Fraser delivered was when he said, in the end, what we regret most are the chances we never took. So as a writer, do you put yourself completely in the head of the character? I'm sure you do. Or does a line like that literally come from you personally as well? I think it has to be a little bit of both or, or, you, or you don't find it for the character. Okay. Uh, it's interesting that you quote that line because it had been, the, the exact same thought had been expressed in the ski lodge as, 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 oh, as the, yes. fuse, <laughs> the fuse that lit, you know, a, 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 a sexual bacchanalia, a mixed, mixed connection. Yeah. It was Martin saying, was Martin saying that at the end of the day, it's the chances you don't take. And I remember that was, I, I wrote that script. I was very proud of that script. But I remember when we were talking about the story, Chris Lloyd suggesting that Martin say something like that as something as the go that would make everybody say, I'm going to go for it tonight. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow saying, why didn't I, why didn't mm. I person I wanted? I'm glad it's one of your favorite ones because it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant episode. It really stands out and it really takes the, takes us to the end of that show. In my opinion, it, you know, it was, it was the hat on top. It really did it. It re is a really, really good episode. You can see you can see a bunch of the writers are standing behind uh, Kelsey and, ah. uh, when he, when he delivers that last that last speech that, that when he quotes the, uh, when he quotes the poem Ulysses in the um, in, in the booth at the end uh, I'm, I'm standing there and uh, Chris Lloyd is standing there and Rob Greenberg and David Lloyd is standing there and Maggie and where is where where we are suddenly magically appearing station personnel standing there next to Jane and David, uh, and other writers appeared throughout that episode as well in the Cafe Nervosa in any place where there was an extra. All the extras were, were writers in that episode. And now for one of Joe's brilliant songs. This one is called Facts, and it's being performed by Bibi Nurif, who's best known as Lilith from the hit TV show, Cheers. Modern life moves rapidly. Modern gals adapt. I complain and vapidly pine for things we've scrapped. Penmanship, ballroom dance, let the hipsters gaze askance. I've always had a passion for treasures out of fashion. As we madly modify, trading old for new. Please don't think me odd if I cite some relics you might miss too. Remember facts, the little certainties that everyone believed. And when the facts would prove us wrong, and make us peeved, we still perceived that they were facts. Now any fact that folks detest, they won't admit, however pressed. So facts that you can see are true, they say are dubious at best. And as you fight all night, Remember rules, even creeps and fools would follow. 
your support would shrivel up and disappear if it were clear they told a lie. But now they know there's lots of news from which their followers can choose, and that, of course, they'll be the source that reinforces all their views. So now the liars never budge, because in the absence of a judge, the lies are true. And as for you, you're just not One thing I certainly miss about Frasier that, you know, the younger writers can't believe me when I tell them that we did that show with almost zero network input. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now when you do something, they are breathing down your neck and micromanaging every single bet, you know, from the table, you know, through every wow. run hole to the shoot night. They are there. And making you know making it clear who's the boss they want this and take the i've just we decided we don't like that line take that out i mean the, it's it's become so it, it's become so unpleasant i've no no desire to you know to to revisit that world and that was and chris and i dealt with that on shows after fraser but fraser that the culture at nbc and paramount at that time they would they would i think i'm sure they were more present and you know for the pilot because it was a brand new show but once a show was strong and up and running and the people knew what they were doing they left you alone and now they really never leave you alone at all couldn't you or other people involved with shows because of your track record can you put it to them that maybe an element of trust is needed right now or how would that come across if you was to say something like that I, I, I think that it, there is now just a different ethos that they're very involved and they're just concerned and they deserve to be heard and they deserve to be respected. I mean, they're not, you know, always horrible, but they're always present and they're all in, in, in a way that they weren't during that time. And they'd say, you need, you know, we are, we are producing the show and you need to, we need to be present for all aspects of it. We need to weigh in on everything. And a great deal of that is, is people who don't create anything, who's, who's, who justify their jobs, who uh. justify salaries by being omnipresent. And, you know, if they weren't necessary, why are they there? I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I understand that. And the, the whole process right now, I, I could be wrong, but it feels like we don't see as many sitcoms as we used to do you think and certainly quality we, ones you don't see we certainly don't see as many multi-cams and that more than anything is is what i miss because having come out of theater having you know loving nothing better than 
than the, than the interaction between actors and an audience, and particularly in comedy where you know, things come together and a moment is right around the corner that you know is going to get an explosive laugh, and it does. That's, that's a, you know, a kind of joy that's simply not present when you do comedy uh, you know, in, in a more filmic way with, no, with, 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 no, with nobody there except, except the crew. Yes, I completely see what you and mean. That, I mean, so you, I mean, so it's one of the reasons I keep, you know, going back to theater and cabaret to have the joy of that connection between your writing and the people performing it and the people watching it. So what can we see next from you? Will it be in the theater or will it be on television? I mean, I know we're going through this crazy pandemic and everything, but as things start to potentially ease off, what will we'll be able to see from you next? Uh, I'm, I'm, well, it won't, won't, be that, won't be that soon. I have a, uh, I was very sad when the pandemic struck because it was going to be a very big theater year for me. I had been doing for uh, the, the prior year and a half, uh, a musical review called Everybody Rise. And it was, it was a political review and it was like Forbidden Broadway. It was, it was an evening of, of show tune parodies about the, the state of the country and the Trump administration, because uh, there, there was, a, there was an, impulse all across the theater to have a response to the insanity of those four years and as somebody who loves writing lyrics and loves you know and and, and frequently wrote parody lyrics as as the best way to write a song quickly for a benefit for instance okay. i had a couple of political parodies that went over extremely well and they were one-offs for you know for annual benefits but right after he got elected the next day I said, these songs, I've written two of them, they, they need to become an evening because there'll be so much to say. There'll be so much to write about. And it, it, the, it did seem the right format in which to say what a lot of people were saying and a lot of people had to say, but in a funnier and a very different way than, than everybody else was saying. Because you could, you could write essays and you could write you know, snarky tweets yeah. But songwriting was a different kind of response that wasn't was more uncommon, and uh, and a more delightful release valve for you and for the audience. Um, so I, I crafted this evening of uh, of show tunes, and it was you know it was like you know, and because Trump was such a showman, he was mm. such a showboat, he was such a making him a kind of you know vaudevillian song and dance man was kind of the, the right metaphor for his narcissism and his strutting. You know, so he would, you know, come out in his first song and sing the song from Chicago. All I care about is love became all I care about is Trump. I don't care about the common man. Even <laughs> I'm not a fan. I can't deny all I care about is Trump. I don't care about improving lives. Never have. Ask my wives. I mean, you would. Brilliant. <laughs> you, 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 would, you would repackage him as a starling, narcissistic, you know, spotlight hogging song and dance man through, you know, and, and the entire administration as well. And that, you know, we did that with a wonderful cast at a variety of cabaret venues, particularly Birdland in New York. Oh. And uh, we had wonderful people. I mean, we had uh, New York cabaret people who your listeners wouldn't know, like Christine Petty, but people that they would know. B.B. Newworth, who played Lilith, did a song. Ah, okay. Uh, Richard Kind, who's very, very well known, you know, played, played Trump in the first one. We had, you know, Brian Batt from Mad Men, yeah, uh, you know, major, major Broadway people, Anne Harada, uh, Liz Calloway, big Broadway musical theater performers, you know, were happy to come in and, and, and take part in it because everybody wanted to respond and everybody loved responding using the medium we love best. So that was about to begin um, a, finally a regular weekly run at Birdland in March of last year, just when the pandemic struck. I, I had I booked a flight to New York. I also had a I had rewritten the book to an Alan J. Lerner uh, uh, and uh, musical called Love Life with songs by him and Kurt Vile. And that was going up at City Center with Kate Baldwin and Brian Stokes Mitchell, who was Cam Winston on Frasier. Uh, and that was going up and, and the plug got pulled on everything the week before. Uh, I also had a new play called Roger and Sylvia that was going to open the season at the Pasadena Playhouse. Nice. And, but, that, but that went away as well. Uh, I was working. Uh, I was working a, a very, very nice money gig uh, uh, for a show called uh, "Why Women Kill," which was a, a show Mark Ch Cherry created last year and did an anthology uh, kind of ten episode, you know, dark comedy drama soapy show about um, about women driven driven to murder. And I had uh, 
come aboard. I'd done, I'd done Desperate Housewives. We called and said, you know, do, do you want to do this? It's 10 episodes for CBS All Access, which was just rebranded as Paramount Plus. And he said, it, it, it'll be, you know, just 10 episodes. So it won't be, you know, as long a commitment as a 22 episode season of Desperate Housewives was. And so I came aboard and I did the first season, which was three stories uh, set in the same house in different, three marriages in three different decades among th three couples who owned the same house. And I wrote all of the scenes for the middle story, which was Lucy Liu, who was delightful, and Jack Davenport uh, as, her, as her gay husband. Um, and I wrote that story. Uh, and I, I agreed to come back and do a second season of the show. So we had just started writing those episodes uh, when the pandemic struck and we, and we were uh, you know, carried on on Zoom. But you know, that, that, that's going to be, uh, that because uh, the pandemic kept pushing the start of production back and back and back again, it wound up, you know, work that should have been done by August wound up going, you know, until Thanksgiving, which was, which was a bonanza for, for the writers who were kept on because it was all, a lot of extra weeks of work after the original contracts had expired. So, uh, but it, it, it's, you know, that's, you know, I, I draw a distinction between work that's for hire. Yeah that where you, you, you do a great deal of work, you do write a lot of scenes and then you hand them off and you know, what, what, what's altered is out of your control. And you know, so your, your interest isn't as keen as for the things where, where your relationship with the audience or with, uh, or with the reader or with the listener is more uh, unmediated. I see. So, uh, Keeping busy. So that, will be, that will be debuting, I believe, in June. Uh, and that stars uh, a popular British actor, Nick Frost. Okay. And now Austin Tillman are, are the stars of the second season. Uh, and I, I wrote a fair amount of that, but I haven't seen, I've barely seen a foot of it. So I'll be as surprised as anybody to see, to see how it all turns out. Uh, meanwhile, though, I'm, I'm writing another book, my fourth. Uh, and I'm, you know, working, um, I'm, I'm hoping this, this play will go up, Roger and Sylvia, in, 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 in California at least, and hopefully beyond that, uh, you know, once theater finally resumes. What's your book about? The uh, book, I did, I did three uh, farcical novels um, uh, with the same cast of characters, uh, and I wanted to write, I, I missed writing fiction, I hadn't written fiction since... Uh, the last book was published in 2006. And uh, I missed writing prose and I and always wanted to write a mystery because I've written a lot of, uh, I've read so many mysteries and I've never written one. And so it's, it's a completely different group of characters and it's period. I had created um, a, a sleuth who had a certain, owes a certain debt, debt to Fraser and that he's, that he's a prima donna and he's a showboat and not quite all he's cracked up to be. And he was such a larger than life kind of classical, you know, mid-century detective with a reputation, you know, a public reputation like a mid-century detective in the Nero Wolfe novels. Everybody knows who Nero Wolfe is. And I said it would be very hard to write this character in a present-day setting and have it make sense any at all. So the the book is set in New York in 1962, uh, and I wanted to write a mystery that was as funny. As, as heavily comic as, 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 the, as the farcical novels while delivering the, the pleasures of an actual, you know, fair play whodunit. Gosh, gosh, you are a real, real writer. TV, books, music, stage, musicals, cabaret. You was born to do it by the sounds of things, Joe. Well, it, it, whatever medium you're writing in, you do it long enough and the other ones get tempting. You, oh, you, you, okay. you, miss, you miss having an audience when you're writing fiction and, uh, and when, you, when, you're, when you're working in theater and television, you miss being able to write something which will go directly to the reader with, with only you know, a, a copy editor between you and your audience. That will make sense. I can understand that. I definitely can. And hopefully your show's going to be out next year when I'm in America and I can, I can watch it. Um, I haven't, I've missed going to the theater myself because of this pandemic and everything. So it'd be great, I think, for writers and, and actors and everyone to get back out there. And for people like myself who like to watch things, being able to go back into a theater again. Yeah, I would hope, I would hope that the, the, the Playhouse is in Pasadena. And uh, I, I assume, 
I assume that their um, that their audience would all be inoculated because the last matinee I went to, the median age was deceased. So uh, I mean, I think ah. they, I think <laughs> I think their subscriber base is well vaccinated. So hopefully, hopefully they'll be up and running in in the fall or late fall. Hopefully, for sure. Hopefully. But Joe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And if you take the time to speak to me and, and let me know about your process, how your experiences have been, how you started them, and what's coming up next for you. We've come to the end of the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. I really enjoyed speaking to Joe. And I'm a great lover of Fraser, as you can tell. So it was amazing for me to get to speak to him about his process and the way he writes and produces. Now we've come to the end. Let's listen to another song from Joe and the title track I truly believe in as much as I love the song. This song is called You've Gotta Have Art. Just for your cats.